Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the back of the range. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 333. My guest on this episode is Chris Hack, men's golf coach at the University of Georgia. His resume is one of the best you'll find in college golf. Two-time national champion, eight SEC championships, and he's produced over 70 All-Americans in his 29 years as the head coach in Athens. There are plenty of other accolades, but one that always gets noticed is the amount of his former players that find success on the PGA Tour. During our conversation, we spoke about his start in the game, his role as one of the founding fathers of the AJGA, and his coaching philosophy that has served him and his team so well. Now, this episode was recorded right before his team headed down to Puerto Rico to kick off the spring semester at the Puerto Rico Classic. As you all know, a little mojo certainly goes a long way here at the back of the range, and the Georgia Bulldogs would go on to win that team title at Grand Reserve. The SEC is going to be absolutely fascinating to watch this spring. Tennessee loses Caleb Surratt. They still go on and post a great finish at Puerto Rico. They have tremendous depth. Old Miss is making a move. Alabama and Vanderbilt, they're going to play this week at the Watersound Invitational, so everyone should keep an eye on them as they start their spring campaigns. This week, I head to Tampa, Florida for the Gasparilla Invitational. The best mid-ams and senior ams in the country will be looking to knock off some rust, and there's no better place to do it than Palmasia Golf and Country Club. So make sure you're following Gasparilla Invitational on Instagram. Follow all of my social media channels on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And head over to the website, thebackoftherange.com, for all previous episodes. Some new merch is rolling in very soon, so keep your eye on that. And feel free to drop me a line with any questions or comments. Ben at thebackoftherange.com. That is my email address. That is how you all can contact me. Let's jump right into this episode. Coach Hack, you're at the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm this beautiful day. Yeah, beautiful day. Yeah, we just talked earlier. It's This is like a common theme for the last like handful of episodes here. I'm in South Florida and my guest is not. <laughs> and and uh, yeah, the weather, uh, I think we're all ready to get the spring season underway. Uh, you guys kick it off in Puerto Rico. Uh, yeah, how excited are you just to get going right about now? Well, I pretty much every day pull up the weather uh, app on my phone and look to see what it's like in Puerto Rico. And <laughs> I see 84, 84, 84, and I can't wait to get down there and uh, and experience that beautiful weather down there. Because that's the one thing I like about kicking the season off down there is we know we're going to get some good weather and uh, and some good golf against some good teams. And so just a nice way to start off the year with uh, with that tournament. Yeah, that's uh, that looks like a fun one. Uh, there, that's a lot of really cool things that you can do in college golf that maybe most people don't think about. You know, obviously you're playing within your conference, you're playing within the United States, and then also you get to throw in a couple tournaments. I mean, you you finish the fall in uh, in in Maui. That that doesn't, uh, as the kids say, that doesn't suck. Um, so you end in Maui, kick off in Puerto Rico. Um, 
Yeah, that's that's fun. How long have you been going? We're going to get into your coaching history and a lot of other stuff, but how long have you been going to to Puerto Rico and to, and to Hawaii? Is that kind of a staple for the program? Yeah, so I've been going to to Puerto Rico. I didn't go my very first year. I think it was my second year. Uh, I kind of used my connections with knowing, uh, you know, Devin Browse, who was putting on the tournament and hosting it at that point, and and got into that event. And I've been going ever since. And and uh, we'll try to not make make sure I miss that one ever, because yeah. I do love kicking off season. You know, Hawaii was a little different in that. You know, it used to be that all the tournaments in Hawaii were always early in the in the season in February. Right. Um, but then they started adding a couple of tournaments into the fa- end of the fall, which I liked that a lot better because it was gave us a good ra- uh, you know, good way to end the fall season. We came back, and then it was kind of all about school at that point until the end of the semester. Um, but going out there again, it's 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 kind of a nice way to, to you know, reward the team with a, a nice trip. And the fact that, you know, because of the way that our playing days are done, you know, we, we every team gets only 24 competition days. You know, Hawaii is a freebie. You don't have to count those days as an incentive for teams to travel to Hawaii and play over there. So it's it's a it's a nice free freebie trip for us competition wise. So uh, I'd rather do that in the fall than the spring. So it's kind of a it's kind of a win win for us both ways. Yeah, I, I learned about that a few years into doing this, that Hawaii didn't count against your uh, competition days. And I was like, well, that that explains why a lot of people are going over there. It's a nice reward and also doesn't go against what you're trying to do once it gets to crunch time. Because I'm sure just you and also all the other uh, top teams in the country, you're trying to figure out who your starting five are going to be. And as many competition days as you can get in the spring to get that figured out, that uh, that that can only help. You're absolutely right. That's that's one of the reasons you do it because it gives you a chance to see your student athletes play more. So the more you can get them uh, playing competitions, the more you have a chance to identify who you want in the postseason. So yeah. it's always good. Let's give a little bit of backstory about uh, your start in the game. Played uh, you played your college golfer for West Georgia. Um, but before that, what, uh, what got you into the game of golf? Well, I, I got into golf, introduced into the game by my mom when I was 11, she would take me out to the golf course and, uh, it was ladies day and, and I would just kind of go off and do what I wanted to do while she was playing golf. But I just kind of, I loved it. And, and I think I played in a tournament when I was 12 there at the club. And I think I won a trophy and that just That's ignited it. my you know that's all it took and and so then i just kind of played uh all the way through you know played in the atlanta junior golf association stuff which was run by the same guy that started the american junior golf association a guy named mike bentley so i played in those events and then when i was uh too old to play in the junior stuff he was kind of dipping his toe into the national stuff of the American Junior Golf Association. And I was helping him out in the summers with the Atlanta Junior and a couple of the uh, events in the American Junior that I'd, I'd played in. And uh, so then all of a sudden had an opportunity to, you know, he said, hey, I want to try to take this American Junior Golf Association thing nationally and really embrace it and, and do it and want you know i wanted to see if you wanted to join me so it was he and i uh a volunteer secretary who was bob tway's mom sure and uh 
and we set off. We had three events that first year and then just started growing it every year after that. And so I did that for 16 years. And, uh, and that's what kind of led me into coaching because in 1990, we created what is called what was called the Cannon Cup, which is now called the Wyndham Cup. Yep. But it was 10 boys and girls from the East against 10 boys and girls from the West. I was fortunate. I was I was the captain of the West team. Stephen Hamlin captained the East. And so in those early days, it was kind of funny. We had a, you know, those are back in the days when it, the membership started at age 14. And I had been at a national junior tournament, the big eye. I'd seen this kid play. And, and that first year we had captain's picks. So we got two captain's picks and I kind of went off the board and went for a non-member kid who was only 13 at the time. And, uh, and then as one of my captain's picks. So then we get to Lake Nona where we were playing. And I was kind of wondering whether I'd made a mistake by taking this young kid who just turned 14 and, I got him on a cart. We went out and played nine holes when he got there. And I said, now nah, I'll be just fine. This kid's pretty good. And it was a young Tiger Woods. So what in, putting what Tiger on my team. And then I had him on that team for, for four years. And I just really enjoyed that, that, that team camaraderie, that team atmosphere. And that was one of the events I looked forward to every year. So I did that for, I think, six years. And then when Dick Copas retired at Georgia, there were some former players that I knew that all played up here and they knew of my uh, stuff at the AJGA, uh, you know, got me interested in it. So I came up and actually talked to Vince Dooley about it and decided, yeah, I wanted to give this a whirl. And, you know, 29 years later, I'm still <laughs> loving it looking back and, and three years into the program, we won our first national championship and it's been it's been just a, a fun dream come true for me ever since. Well, you, uh, that is a hell of a story. I want to back up a little bit because people listening right now, I want to make sure they fully understand what you just said. You, what you basically said is, you know, Mike Bentley and yourself really formed what the AJGA is today in, in people's eyes, a national junior golf association and, and tour of tournaments all over the country. I mean, you know, not to, I'm not trying to embarrass you on my own podcast, but I mean, it's fair to say you're one of the founding fathers of the modern, you know, image of what junior golf is today in the United States. Uh, to, to get it to where it is today, I mean, nobody thinks of all these recruits that you see coming in year after year and all these junior, everyone's playing AJGA. It's almost like that's kind of a ticket that people think, all right, I have to check that box to get noticed by a college coach. It was just an absolute love getting that thing going. I mean, you know, our whole goal was to try and take these big tournaments and put them all around the country and get the best players you know, from all over to play in these events to be able to showcase. And what we found out real quick was that, you know, the college coaches were showing up at our events. And that's where I formed my my relationship with Mike Holder at Oklahoma State. Yeah. Because he was one of the first guys to really embrace it and show up, you know, at, at what was our Tournament of Champions, which was our flagship event. And, you know, just about every kid that he was recruiting – you know, from, uh, you know, from Scott Verplank and Willie Wood and, and EJ Fister and Brian Watts and, 
you know, all those guys were guys who were playing in our events and were literally, you know, first team all Americans and, and player of the years. He, he saw what great players were being identified. And so it became a, a great recruiting opportunity. So all the different coaches would start showing up at our events and that's really where, where I developed my relationship with all the coaches and have known so many of those guys throughout the years that when I finally got into coaching, I mean, I knew everybody. I knew sure. I knew all the coaches and I could leverage that to get into the better tournaments. And, and, and of course, Georgia had a great history of, of college golf here too. I mean, they had so many good players that had come through here that were you know, U.S. junior champions and first-team AJJ All-Americans as well. So, you know, I, I was familiar with both. Um, so it was a real easy pickup for me to jump right in and, and go. So, um, but, yeah, those those AJJ days, you know, again, when people talk about a lot of these great players, whether it, you know, was with Tiger, but, you know, Phil Mickelson, uh, you know, these David Duvall, Justin Leonard, um, these were all guys that I knew, you know, when they were 13 and 14 years old. And so when I get a chance to go out and I see these guys today, oh my gosh. I run into them, <laughs> it's like, you know, yeah, it's like old homework for me. Cause I get a chance to, to catch up with them and not only on the guy side, but on the girl's side as well. Sure. But, uh, but significantly on the men's side, since I'm in the, on the men's side of coaching, but um, yeah, it was, it was great. It was it was unbelievable to think about the the players that have all matriculated through the AJGA and Mike Bentley, you know, he and I were, were the, the, the starters of that whole thing. But then, you know, Stephen Hamblin, who was at the time, he was the, the, the pro at Innisbrook where we were doing our, our end of the year event, um, you know, named all the all Americans and gave out our player of the year awards. He was the pro that helped us put on that event. And he was so ultra organized and such a good guy that that's when we, we coaxed him into coming in and really becoming more the executive director of the thing. And Mike Bentley faced himself out. And so then it was Stephen and I, uh, over the next, whatever it was, you know, 10, 12 years. And Steven really, he really helped take that thing and ushered it into the, into the era it is now. And yeah. Again, very, very smart, organized, um, uh, great executive who is, who's done wonders with that program. Well, you're on, you're on the Mount Rushmore of junior golf. We'll leave it at that. I mean, I think, I think it's fair to put you, put your, put your face up there somewhere. Um, you know, I was at Jones Cup just a few weeks ago up there at Sea Island, and I'm not sure if it was Miles Russell or Blades Brown, or but one of the juniors in the field, uh, Tyler Watts, and I'm seeing, like, there's a group following. And this isn't, like, in the final round. This was, like, a practice round. And it had to have been, like, agents or things like that. Um, could you have imagined a day where you're seeing agents following 13 and 14 and 15 year olds at a, at a tournament? No, but if they had been on top of their games 30 years ago, they would have been out there watching Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods yeah. and, and David Duvall and those type of guys. But, um, but though, but again, I think the agents are getting smart to realize that these kids 
are really good and yeah. we got to start getting out there and, and, and watching all these junior golfers. Um, so, so yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me anymore. I, I, I do know from a coaching standpoint, I wish I'd give them a little bit of room, but our world's changing, you know, with NIL and, and, uh, all that kind of stuff. It's, it's all changing and, and going much more rapid than, I would have ever imagined. Do you do you have any con- not 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 so much AJGA, but I'm just talking about just the general landscape of junior golf. Are, is that kind of one of your primary concerns? I guess with it right now that there's just it's there's a little bit um, <clears throat> perhaps the business side of things is kind of you know leaking into junior golf. Or what what are your kind of concerns as we move forward with, like you said, we have junior golf, we have the NIL piece, we have we're going to talk about transfer portal, we're going to talk about a lot of stuff like that, but like what, what maybe are there any sources of concern for you in junior golf right now? You know, it would probably be again, I guess, cause I'm older and I kind of look back with great memories of, of how great junior golf was and the relationships and the friends, you know, so many of the guys that I met through junior golf, you know, are lifelong friends. I just, I don't want it to destroy the innocence of what was so great about golf, you know, yeah. that, that everybody's in such a rush to make a dollar or, or, or be successful immediately that, that we lose what was so great about, you know, golf in general. And that, and that it to me is the greatest game you could ever play because you could play with anybody at any level and still have fun. And, um, you know, I, I think from a coaching standpoint, again, I don't want everybody being such a rush that, that they don't have the natural growing up, maturing aspect of, of golf and, uh, and get out there so fast and try to make it so fast that they end up burning out and it, and it becomes a job Yeah, that it's not fun for them anymore. And, and it seems like, you know, I saw that, I saw that early on, it seemed like in the AJJ days, you saw it more on the girl side where some of these girls got burned out because maybe the mom or dad was so much on top of them that they took the fun out of it. So I don't want to see that happen. I want to, I'd still like to see it still be fun. And, and again, that's what was so great about the Cannon cup. And now the Wyndham cup is that it was a time when all the kids were together. There were no parents. It was just me, all the kids, Steven and his team and all the kids. And it was just fun. It was one of the best, highlights of the year um so i I just want to see that maintain itself i'd love to 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 see that not get so early that kids have lost that fun part until let them let them go be kids and and they'll be adults quick enough yeah Let's, let's keep the fun there yeah i i kind of agree with that i see you know i don't go to many junior tournaments but i you know i'm at the junior jones cup or i'm at the jones cup junior and uh, I'm at uh, a couple other ones throughout the year. I see some kids uh, at, at obviously the Jones Cup and other um, like terracotta. And I'm just thinking like, man, they, some of them are only like 16 years old. They're already acting like tour stars. And I'm like, you're, you got plenty of time before you're ever going to get paid to play golf. Go be a kid. Go have fun. Well, you know, in, in, in the early days of the AJJ from probably 78 until probably 1988, 89, I would say that we very rarely 
had parents that ever came to our junior tournaments. We, you know, we offered private housing for any of the kids that came and we would, that, that was always a big component of our events and that, you know, we had local families that would take kids in. Um, I, I myself was a product of that when I played in the, in the AJJ, um, tournaments, we stayed in a private house and, and that was again, part of the, the fun of the whole thing. And then probably in like 80, 86, 88, 89, somewhere in there, um, you know, parents would start showing up with the kids and, and then the, the private housing aspect of the whole thing kind of went away. And I think, again, we lost a little something there because you saw parents getting overly involved. Yeah. And, and again, it would almost became a little bit like little league, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, like travel soccer, travel baseball, stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that kind of, again, it changed a little bit of the innocence of what was going on, but I do think that the AJJ did a pretty good job of still maintaining, um, you know, the, the, the fun with the kids and, and not letting the, the parents get overly involved, but like anything else, it just, they're, they're there. And, and I, and I like, I'll go out to it. If I'm at a junior tournament and I see a parent, you know, putting the, putting together the pull oh. cart for the kid, oh. or they're on the range cleaning the clubs. <laughs> I just want to go over and go, please, please leave and, and let the kid just let him figure it out on his own. Oh my gosh. You know, that's so funny. I was just, I literally was just thinking about that. I'm like, yeah, so many times I see the parents, gosh, there's a, there was a parent. I'm not going to mention the name of the parent was like, yeah, we, uh, we're five under today. You know, we're getting it back. We're in contention. We're playing well today. And I just looked at, looked at the parent. I'm like, I'm sorry, we, did you say we like, uh, you know? Yeah, no, I agree. The kids, let, let them be kids. Let them, Hey, let them, uh, let them figure it out on their own. I mean, they're, that's, it's the only way they're going to learn. Only way they, I mean, you got to rely on yourself when you're out there. So yeah, I think they can, they can get their clubs out of the, out of the car themselves. And yeah, hundred percent. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't think some of these parents realize what a detriment it is sometimes in recruiting. Um, because there are some kids that I did not recruit simply because I wasn't going to deal with their parents because I already saw what they were all about. You know what? They're coming to play for me. Parents aren't coming to play for me and they're not going to come coach my guys. So I, I, I literally will avoid those type of parents. And there's a lot of coaches that feel the same way. That has to be one of the worst things that can happen to a college golfer. If, if his or her parent is, reaching out to the coach asking why my kid isn't in the lineup that is i mean if you're the kid you just gotta want to just hide in your dorm and just not even come out to the golf course that's gotta be terrible well it it, it's very easy for me because it's all based on playing we play you know oh no 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 i'm just saying in general i'm just thinking of some poor kid i'm just thinking some poor kid and and over you know overbearing mother or father that's just got to be i mean you're that's almost a death sentence that's awful Oh yeah. And I've had some of those over the years where I've maybe have a kid come up and say, Hey, I'm coach. I'm sorry. <laughs> go, hey, it's no big deal. That's okay. I can handle it. I'm a big boy. Oh so. my gosh. Uh, let's, let's t- Okay. So 29 years as the head coach at, at Georgia and 
what so I mean, this is just absolutely fascinating because when you th- you know when I I'm at college tournaments all the time and you have uh, assistants and some teams have two assistants, but you're you've just brought on a second assistant. We'll we'll get to uh, we'll get to talking about your assistants, Jim Douglas and Mookie Namas, in, in a little while. But most coaches of Division One schools. Uh, they start somewhere else. They start as an assistant, or maybe they had a, a head coaching job at a at a Division two school, or some sort of a a you know breaking in period, or you're kind of cutting your teeth, kind of figuring out what you're going to do. That was not the case. You literally went from the AJGA to being the head coach at the University of Georgia. This is your first and only coaching position that you've ever had. So I have to ask the first year. Did you know how to run a practice? I mean, I guess you had a little bit from the Cannon Cup, but still, you know, you weren't exactly coaching them there. You were the captain. But how do you work out a schedule, recruiting? I mean, what was that first year for you trying to figure out, okay, I'm, I'm the man now. What do I do? Well, it was um, a little bit like, you know, drinking out of a fire hose <laughs> yeah. early on uh, yeah. because I was having to figure out everything on my own. You know, I, I held off hiring an assistant coach for a semester because I wanted to figure out what it was that I needed, um, before I ever, you know, even went down that road. Um, but I just, you know, I, I literally took what I thought I had heard over the years. So, so one of the advantages that I had was at Thanksgiving when I was with the AJGA, all the kids, as long as they were still age eligible, could come back and play in that event because we gave out, again, that's where we gave out the All-American plaques and sure. Player of the Year and so forth. So we would always have, uh, you know, a, a couple of handful of kids that would come back and play in that event um, that were already freshmen in college. And so inevitably I would always see those guys and I'd be like, Hey man, how's, you know, how's, how's school, how's college? Are you loving it? And so forth. It was unbelievable how many times I would hear, well, it's, it's not all it was cracked up to be, you know, the coach doesn't play me because I'm a freshman. He, he picks the older guys, you know, even though I'm beating everybody, you know, you know, during qualifying, he still picks me over and, you know, I, I was, it was, it was kind of crazy how many times I would hear that story over and over. And so one of the things that I decided when I got into coaching here is that I wasn't going to, I wasn't going to be that guy. I didn't care what kind of scholarship you were on. I didn't care if you were a freshman. All I cared about was what are you shooting? What, what, you know, I'm, I'm recruiting you because I think you're a good player. I've obviously seen you, what you could do on the national level in junior golf. I know how good the AJJ competition is. So if I'm recruiting you, I think you're a good player. And there have been plenty of good freshmen that have come into programs and have played well, i.e. Phil Mickelson, Tiger Woods, David Duvall, Bryce Moeller, any of those guys. So again, you know, the beautiful thing about golf is that, you know, you tee it up 69 beats 70 every time. Yes, it does. So I'm not, I'm not a coach who's out here trying to 
evaluate who my best pulling guard is or who who's my best dribbler down the court, you know, and I'm going to lean on the older guy with the experience who said, hey, boys, we're going to tee it up. And we're going to play and we're going to, we're going to see, you know, who's, who plays best and, and whoever qualifies, they, they're the ones that go to the tournament. And so I think early on, all the kids really liked that and embrace that because then they knew it, it's not going to be me picking my favorites. It's going to be me picking the guys who've earned it. And, and that was always a recipe for success for us the, you know, and, and there were a lot of times when we would pull out in the van headed to the airport and one of our better players was, was not going. So in my 29 years, I have only had four players that never missed a tournament based on our qualifying system. You had Kevin Kisner, Brian Harmon, Russell Henley, and Trent Phillips. Everybody else that we've had in this program at some point or another missed qualifying and didn't go. And I'll never forget Brendan Todd telling me one time, you know, who was an All-American, that there was nothing that motivated him more than being uh, standing on the range watching the van leave. Because he was like, you know what, I'm never going to miss another tournament. So they take that qualifying very serious. Um and they know that that's their ticket to playing. And so by the, you know, so all our qualifying that we were doing as intense as it was, then when we went to the tournament, then it was more, it was fun. Yeah, It was fun to go play. And, and again, you know, guys knew that, Hey, if I go finish top 10, I, I, I earned my exemption for the next event, but, but if I don't, I'm going right back into the hopper and, and have a chance to re-earn a spot on the team again. So do you remember a senior that had a perfect record going into like the spring of their senior year and they missed a tournament? Do you remember like I, I don't know if that's something you've really kind of tracked. Yeah. But, oh gosh, tell me. Do you do you remember a yeah. senior that no, literally Spen- all who was it? Spencer Ralston. Oh wow. Spencer Ralston right. had never yeah, he had never missed a tournament. He didn't miss a tournament until his senior year. But then he ended up getting a COVID year back and was able to play a fifth year and didn't miss a tournament that year. So he he actually went four years and never missed a tournament, but he had he had one in his uh in his senior year that uh wow. that derailed him. But but that was only one. But sure. yeah, it happens. Wow. That's, uh, that's, that's saying something. I mean, I I, I mean, that's, that's one thing that I think is very unique about your program. I think the other thing, you know, when when I'm out at tournaments, (laughs) it's funny. I remember when I first, you know, started traveling to a lot of tournaments, I would see a lot of coaches, a lot in practice rounds and then some in the competition, but man, I'd see some coaches that just were very, how can I say this in a nice way? Very involved on seemingly straightforward shots and i would see coaches get get over to the player wire what do you got let's look at this talk about that let's look at the wind let's look at the line look at yardage and here it is to the front and i'm just kind of thinking to myself it's uh it this is just a wedge shot the pins in the middle it's a wedge the kid has hit this hundreds of times and the coach kind of comes out of the trees and just gets right on the bag and let's talk about this and it's a wedge shot and I don't see you or or Jim Douglas, your assistant, I don't see you guys doing a lot of that at tournaments. And, you know, I would ask around a little bit and say, hey, you know, what's what's kind of the approach? 
and I'll let you kind of explain your philosophy, but it seems that you're once you get them there, you, let, you kind of let them play. Is that pretty much a good synopsis of what you what your philosophy is? Uh, yeah, I would say so. I, look, I, I think that w- if you look back and think to yourself, okay, what's your ultimate goal for these kids? You know, my ultimate goal for them is to prepare them for life, right? Sure. You want them to be able to leave college and be, you know, self-reliant on being able to handle things on their own and grow up and, and be responsible adults and so forth. And every one of them come in with aspirations of playing, you know, they want to play professional golf. And we all know the reality is that's hard to do. Sure. Well, you know, one thing I, I know after being in the golf business for 45 years is that, you know, the, the, the guys who are the most prepared and self-reliant and, and self-motivated and so forth, they're the guys who tend to be the most successful And so one of the things we try to do is just make sure that they realize that if they want to be great, they're the ones that got to make it happen. We're going to give them all the tools. We're going to create the atmosphere. Um, We're going to try to give them the competition to, to measure themselves against and, and figure out if that's a direction that they want to go in their life that, you know, is professional golf, something you want to pursue and, and do. And so we basically, you know, again, we, we put it all, all the onus on them. I've always said that if I've got a kid here who I've got to tell him, he's got to get out here and practice, and this is what he's got to work on. And, and, and we've got to do those type of things. I've recruited the wrong guy. Sure. So I try to recruit the guy who is self-motivated golf junkie loves it. This is what he wants to do. And then we're going to, then we're going to create the the circumstances for him to, to, to hone his skills by creating competition and trying to teach them how to, you know, be more confident, how to play without fear, um, you know, gain, gain that type of confidence that will allow them to become better players. And so by the time they leave here, you know, they're kind of used to it. They're used to having to do these things on their own. Um, you know, I can remember Chris Kirk one day we were talking about working out or something. And, and I remember him telling me, he goes, you know, coach, I used to hate having to go to workouts. And I kept thinking to myself, um, you know, when I get, when I finally get out of school and I'm playing professional golf, I'm never working out. (laughs) And he said, he said, you know, now here I am, I'm literally paying a guy to work me out because I know how important it is. And he said, I really wish I would have embraced that more and realized that when I was in school. Um, so again, these guys, again, they, they, they start to figure it out as they hear from the older guys that all these things that we're trying to create for them are all good for them, but they've got to embrace it and and they've got to, they got to be the ones that really want to make it happen if they want to be successful. So, you know, when I look at the guys on the tour that we've got out there, again, that, that it wasn't that we got them out there. We just gave them the format in which they could, you know, become better players and, and gain the confidence to do what they're doing. So, um, you know, that's, that's our ultimate goal is we don't want to be handholders. I don't, you know, I think as coaches, we all fight, the urge 
to jump out there in the middle of the fairway to try to help that guy or yeah. to, you know, run down on the green and say, Hey, I've watched this putt. It's really fast. But you know, as soon as I do that, that guy leaves that putt five feet short. Now he's got another downhill. <laughs> yeah. And, and who do you think, who do you think he's going to blame? Of course. That's, that's me. Yep. You know, and if he, if he makes that putt, he's not going to come up there and go, Hey coach, that's all because of you. <laughs> he's going to, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where we've got to fight the urge to do it. And Jim Douglas, who's been with me forever, you know, he and I are a great balance because, you know, Jim grew up with a, with a golf background as dad was a golf pro in Augusta. And, and, uh, so we both, you know, have been around golf our whole lives and sure enough, I mean, if I'm sitting there with, with, with coach Douglas in the card and we see something, you know, and I might go, gosh, you know what? I'm going to walk down there and tell him this, you know, Douglas will pull me back and go, Hey, hacker, no, 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 you know, better than that. <laughs> or he might say the same thing. And I'll say to him, no, 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 Doug, we, we don't need to do that. You know, so we try to, we try to limit what we do to just being, you know, either on a par three, just to give them information, not sure. to tell them what to hit or whatever. We're just an information source. Or, you know, if Jim wants, you know, if one of the guys wants Jim to walk with them, you know, it's better that he's with them the whole round and just more as a, a caddy, not really telling them what to do, but just reinforce trying to get them to believe in what they're trying to do. And that's, that's really our role. And what we're trying to do is, is just, just make them believe in themselves and, and, uh, and give them the confidence so that they can do it on their own. Yeah. You have so many former uh, players on the, on tour. I mean, I was just looking at it and it's just, and of course it changes from year to year, you know, some players fall off, new players get added, but I mean, gosh, you know, Brendan Todd and, now you got you got a claret jug in, in uh, on on the program's resume with Brian Harmon and Henley and English and Kirk and Watson and Mitchell. I mean, just goes on and on and on. Um, and I'm guessing their involvement with the program hasn't hasn't slowed down either. Uh, I have to ask, uh, what is the Letterman's four ball? Uh, that's something that we started. Uh, quite a few years back, but basically it's just a, a four ball tournament that any former player. So they kind of team up and, and uh, it's a two man best ball type of thing. And what's funny is the very first one we did probably, gosh, this is probably now 15 years ago. I mean, it was unbelievable. The uh, you know, the guys that showed up for this thing. And um, at one point somebody said, heck, if, if uh, anybody was paying attention, you could probably get some FedEx points for this event. But, <laughs> or at least uh, sell tickets. Yeah. And so now that we've done it, you know, we've probably had, and we only do it every other year. Okay. But, um, but you know, you've got, you know, Bubba, Bubba and his, I think he won it with Ryan Hill one year and he won it with David Miller one year, but Harris and Kirk won it one year. And uh, I think Henley and Nick Cassini won it one year, but we make these t-shirts and it's got every year and who the winners were. Well, we've got enough history in it now to where everybody's like, man, I want my name on that T-shirt because uh -huh. there's some pretty impressive names on there uh, from the four ball winner. But um, but again, it just becomes a reunion where these guys all sit under a tent and they're telling stories and all reminiscing about their days when they were here. And, you know, we've had guys um, 
like the great Vinnie Giles and Chip Beck and Tim Simpson and Billy Kratzer, you know, that all come back and, and it's fun. It's, it's fun to be around all those great players and hear some of their stories from their uh, playing days and their tour days. I, I know with this hands-off approach, um, you know, somebody, I'm sure you've had many players kind of emerge as leaders. I, I'm not going to ask you who your best player is or who your favorite player has been. I feel that that's probably a, um, you've been asked that many times, but can you remember like some of the best captains you've ever had on these teams where, where really they've just emerged at, with just incredible leadership abilities? You know, actually, uh, the guy that I just hired as my third uh, assistant, Mookie DeMoss, was one of my best captains I ever had. Um, you know, Kevin Kisner was a good captain because he was he was very uh, <laughs> vocal, very lo- but he was also very loose. Ryan Hibble was a great captain yeah. that we had. Um, you know, and, and Nick Cassini was a great captain. I, I've had some really good guys just over the years, um, but but you know, a good captain, in my opinion, and the way we formed it was they were just going to kind of become an extension of us. We just, we just would always say, look, we're going to give you guys whatever you guys need to be successful. There's something that we're doing. You don't like, or there's something that y'all would rather do, or you something else we want to do or go just work it till you can, you know, talk to the captain about it. So that when he comes in and sits down and talks to us about, Hey, here's what the guys are thinking, you know, then we can kind of discuss it with them. And, and a lot of times we would make some changes based on what they wanted, because I'm, I would say I'm definitely a player's coach because I want them, you know, I want them to be happy, but, but there'll be a lot of times, especially in the later years where they'd come in and I'd say, Hey, listen, it's a great idea, but we've tried that before and here's why it doesn't work. And they would go, okay, well that makes sense. So again, having a lot of years of experience under our belt, we've tried all kinds of different things, different ways. And, uh, and they realize that, that, yeah, we, we pretty much have tried a little bit of everything, but I'm always open to, to anything that these guys think is going to help them because at the end of the day, they're the ones that have to play. They're the ones that have to put up the score. And, uh, I just, I never want them blaming me. So I pretty much try to give them anything they ever asked for, whether it's a training aid or they need a different club or a different putter. It's always like, okay, you know what? Because I don't want them ever coming to me and saying, I would have played a lot better if I'd had that new putter or new driver or, or that training aid. Sure. So we, we, we try to give them everything they need. You mentioned Kisner. Were you surprised at all to see NBC give him a live microphone on a golf broadcast? Well, I kind of chuckled when I heard that because I thought, well, you know, <laughs> Kiz, Kiz is a very quick-witted, you know, funny guy. And so my only thought was, I just hope Kiz, you know, is Kiz. I hope he's he says the uh, the funny snarky little funny things that he does yeah and i thought i thought he did a really good job with it oh yeah, yeah. he's he's very quick-witted and and he pretty much tells it like it is he's not one to to shy away and um so no i thought he, and i thought he did a great job i was gonna be real curious as if whether he's gonna be very very reserved and um because you know what doing doing that is not easy no. that's not an easy easy gig uh, as you well know, and it's um, it's something that I thought you know it'll be interesting to see if he actually is still 
himself and his personality. And I thought he, I thought he was. You mentioned, uh, we, we've gone back to this, but I mean, I, I'm just fascinated with just the hands-off approach at, at some point though, um, you do probably have to get involved. There's, I mean, for 29 years, there's, there's gotta be some times when, when they, they just kind of need a, a firmer hand and kind of get them going in the right direction. How do you know when to get involved, whether it's on the golf course or, or if things are just not flowing well at practice or just, there's, there's just not a good vibe around the team. They're not as focused. How do you know when, and, and what do you do to kind of just kind of get the team back on the right track, whether it be after, you know, like I said, a bad week of practice or a bad result at a tournament. What are some of the things that you kind of focus on to get them going again? We're still very involved on a, on an everyday basis, whether it's, just, whether it's just hanging out with them and so forth. But like, for instance, when I talk about our qualifying, I mean, we do that type of qualifying, right? All the way. And I, we keep all the data, you know, we keep stats and we keep, you know, the records of everything that they're doing because just, and the way I look at it and I try to explain it to them, it's kind of like, it's kind of like picking the Ryder cup. We're going to have a season full of stat, uh, you know, stats that we can look at, but at some point in the spring, I'm going to sit down with Jim Douglas and Mookie and we're going to go, okay, now we've got to we've got to figure out who our team is going to be yeah. going forward because I'm you know at some point you're not going to just leave it up to chance that a guy who hasn't who hasn't maybe played but one tournament all year and then all of a sudden he has a hot week and qualifies and he's going to go to conference well you don't want that so or, or on the other hand you, and and you also don't want a guy that seems to qualify every week and then all season long can't deliver when he gets to the tournament. Correct. So, so again, they're all going to be given those opportunities all fall and into the spring up into a certain point. And again, a lot of it is just gut feeling. It's, it's, it's how, how's the team chemistry? How's that all going? So, but at some point we're going to make a determination on, okay, here are the five guys that are going to go forward and be our team for postseason. And now, now that you can sub it'll probably be six guys yeah. and then you'll just kind of play by ear on what you want to do. But so we stay very involved in that route, but to your point, you know, if, if things aren't going the right way or, or guys just look like they're goofing off and all that kind of stuff. I mean, there've been times over the years where, you know, I just, you got to have the instinct to know when that, that moment is or when a guy messes up. So one of the things that I've always done with our team is that we've always had a, a, a pretty common rule. And that is, Hey, if one guy messes up, whether it's, he skips a class that he's not supposed to, or he skips, you know, just skips workouts or he does, you know, he throws a club or maybe he lets off an F bomb during the tournament with people around or, or whatever it is that might be, egregious in our opinion. Yes. Well, we had what was called a 530. And that was if that guy, whatever, whoever did it, the whole it it, it punished the whole team. So the whole team would have to meet at 530 and we would have a a, a run or a or extra workout or whatever the case may be that we were going to do um on that 530 thing. So it, what it did is it made all the teammates responsible for each other. So, so, you know, somebody was, 
if somebody was going to do something stupid, their teammates might jump in and say, Hey, no, 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 you, you're not doing that. Right. You know? right. We're not going downtown this weekend, or we're not doing that because if one guy messes up, the whole team would run. And so we, we literally had, uh, you know, those type of situations where, where again, I would get involved and, and it might be that I just thought that, these guys need a little bit of a wake up call. And so it might be a, a small thing, but I would use it as a, as an opportunity to get them together for those workouts. And what I would do in those situations would be, we would, we'd run them until, you know, they were ready <laughs> to be done, but I would always give them an out at the end, whether it was, whether it was, we, I remember one year we had Richard Scott who was from Canada, really wasn't a basketball player, but I, I, we were in the gym and I said, Hey, if he can make a free throw, we're done. And of course he made the, you know, and they're all mad because I picked him, but I picked him for a reason because he, he wasn't any good at basketball. Love it. Love it. But, but he switched it and they lifted him up. Like we had just won the, the, you know, the Olympics. Wow. Um, you know, one year I, I took the guys out one year to the track and I said, all right, I want you to give me the four. I want y'all to tell me who are the four fastest guys we have on the team. <laughs> and I think at the time it was Henley and Adam Mitchell and maybe Rob Bennett and Harmon. And I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to, I'm going to send one guy around the track. And as he starts getting close, I'm going to send the next guy and try to time it up. But I want to see if you guys, each one in one, running one lap can break the four minute mile. And they were like, Oh yeah, I mean, we could do this. If we could do it this way. Well, they did it and they did it in like four eighteen. Wow. And they were, I mean, again, even myself, we were all sitting there going, man, how in the world did one guy do that? Right. Exactly. You know, much less having, you know, one guy run uh, one lap and they, you know, again, it was kind of an educational thing for him. It was kind of like, wow, that's, that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I always try to do something fun like that at the end, whether, you know, somebody could do, it. I remember one year I asked, uh, I said, can anybody sing the star spangled banner? And I remember Brendan Todd, he butchered that so bad that we, <laughs> we let him quit just cause it was so bad. Man. <laughs> Um, so we always, we always like to have fun like that. Yeah, you have to. You have to keep it fun. Uh, you have to keep it light, especially. I mean, college golf the season's very, very long. Um, I, I just, I'm also just looking at the, like the names of players that have made it on tour, have won on the PGA Tour. I mean, Bubba won the Masters twice. Harmon, as I said, the Open champion. And, uh, love Vinny Giles. I've, I've met. I've had a chance to talk to him many times. And he's just he's great. Um, You've seen so many players go to the tour and uh, there's, I mean, well, I could be wrong, but I would imagine that, that not every single player that comes through your program and you see them move on to the next level, you're probably not thinking that every single one of them is going to make it just because you know the reality of how things work. And it's just, it's very hard to make it, make a career out there on the PGA tour. Do you remember times looking at players and thinking like, I, I just don't see it or... 
Um, I mean, that's got to kind of be difficult for you. You want to encourage them, but also you're trying to give them a dose of reality. Some of these players that have made it, it must come, I wouldn't say as a shock, but I'm guessing some of them are just like, I just didn't see that coming. I didn't see that career coming for that player. Are there times as they're leaving where you're just kind of like, well, good luck. <laughs> I'm rooting for you. I just don't know what to expect. You know, I'll be honest with you. I've probably been more surprised at some of the guys that didn't make it. Okay. Fair, that I fair. thought would make it. Yeah. So, so again, I, I think they all had, you know, the game to do it. And, you know, there are a lot of guys that we've had a lot of guys that made it as far as, you know, what is the corn Ferry tour now that maybe never made it past there, but always, you know, had a, had a chance um, but you know, it, it, what you find out is it's, it's not an easy life. I think it's, I think a lot of these players think that it's a, a glamorous life out there. It is. If you're, if you're tiger and you can, you know, net jet to every event and check sure. out the, the 15 or 18 events you want to play all year and then you're done. But a lot of these guys, they're having to, they're having to worry about their schedule. They're having to worry about, are they going to be in next week? Or, you know, I've got to go Monday qualify and then hope I get in. Um, and it's not cheap. It's not a, you know, it's not an easy road. You know, traveling is hard. And so I think a lot of those guys that were on the Corn Ferry Tour never made it to the next level. Um, I was surprised by some of those guys because there were some really good players, but a lot of them had a chance. But a lot of them, I think, realized it wasn't really the life for them either. Yeah. Um, you know, if they had maybe won a couple of times on the Corn Ferry Tour and got out on the big tour, may you know, they might have liked it. But it's 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 a difficult um, it's a difficult road. And thank goodness they're making enough money in this day and age. Uh, if they do make the tour where they can make a pretty good living. But, you know, back in those early days, heck, I can remember, um, you know, just looking back at my, my, uh, even in my AJ, AJGA days, I mean, the, the winner got $180,000. Yeah. You know, now, heck, you, you finish 40th and maybe make $180,000. So it's just, uh, it was a, it's a tough deal. And you got to really want it. You got to be really mentally tough to travel and to, to, to basically live out of a suitcase. And it's not, it's not as easy for everybody as everybody thinks it is. Yeah. I'm guessing the conversations with that you have with pro, with your players that in their first, second or third year as a professional is, monumentally different than the conversations that you're having with a Keith Mitchell and a Brendan Todd and, and a Brian Harmon. I mean, I, the, the, they must be calling you and I mean, it, it must be a broken record truthfully, because you've heard it many times, but you know, those first couple of years when they're struggling, yeah, it's not fun. I, I, I don't think players really understand how great they have it as amateurs uh, in that last year or two. I mean, they're all focused on, you know, their pro career and when that's going to start, I don't think they understand how good they have it as amateurs. Oh no, that there's no doubt. We hear that all the time. We, you know, all the, all the former players will say, man, we had no idea how good it was here. And, and, you know, all of a sudden, all of a sudden they go to the, to, to the mini tour events or they get even get to like, uh, you know, the corn fairy events. And, you know, again, we fed them pretty well here. We had workout 
organized for them here. You know, they never had to worry about making their own plane flights and all those type of things that they're like, man, this is just crazy how difficult this is to do. And again, I, I always tell them, I said, this is one of the reasons we tried to make sure you guys were as self-reliant as you could, you know, so that you could be prepared for this, you know? So the last thing you want to do is add a few more things to their bucket list that they had to worry about. Um, you want to try to take some of that off of them and make sure that they realize that, Hey, this is, this is what you got to do at the next level. So you better be prepared for it. And, uh, it, it is. It, they've got it. They've got it really good here really, right now. And and there's nobody that knows that more than the kids that transfer. So we've got, you know, we've got two or three kids that have transferred in here from smaller schools who all of a sudden go, holy cow, this is this is unreal what we have available to us here. Sure. Um, so, again, we, you know, so in some form or fashion, I feel like I'm spoiling them, which is fine. But they also hear me preach to them about why they need to appreciate what what they've got and they do you you mentioned transfer portals so uh, you know this is kind of something that i, I think is obviously uh, having an impact on college golf it's going to continue you've you've kind of been on both sides of it i mean you've you've gained a player like for example you you, you picked up caleb Manuel for came out of yukon and then also you know maxwell ford left to go play with his brother at unc so you've seen kind of seen it from both ends how does that affect your coaching or how is it going to affect college golf moving forward, at least on how you deal with it? I mean, you, you want to coach them, uh, you know, you want to coach them up, but also you, I mean, how, yeah. How do you, I'll just even, I'll just shut up and let you take it. Like how do, how do you handle kind of the way college golf has morphed uh, recently in the last few years with things like NIL and the transfer portal? I'd like to tell you that I've got it figured out, but I think it's just, <laughs> It's one of those uh, ever-evolving situations that we're just going to continue to learn about and try to navigate and, and so forth. But, but yeah, I've been on both sides of it. But I will say this. Um, I, I'm not a fan of the transfer portal deal. I'm not a fan of the NIL stuff. But that's just my opinion. But I also know that I've got to deal with the reality that it's here and it's sure. here now, and and, uh, and it's something we've got to we've got to do. I do think that a program like ours is probably going to benefit, yeah, from both of those situations uh, more so than some other places. And so again, I even though I think it's it's an enhancement probably for us, I still don't think it's the best thing for our sports, um, across college golf, but also, uh, you know, across all college athletics. Um, but you know, I, I, my feeling on it is, is if I've got, if I've got a player here that wants to go someplace else, I'm fine with that. You know, again, I, I had a, a, a very good relationship with Maxwell Ford, I felt. And, and again, if the draw for him was to go and play with his twin brother. Yeah. I mean, so be it. you know, I, I, again, I, I don't hold any, I don't hold any grudges with that and I wish him well and so forth because I, my way I look at it is that, Hey, somebody's going to want to play for me. So I'm okay. Yeah. There's, I've got other players here that, that want to be here and that, and that's fine. And then on the flip side of that, I, I mean, we get inundated with, you know, a lot of emails of kids who are in the transfer portal that would love to come here. And so we, we've got to do is, is really, 
you know, not, not jump into that too strongly because, you know, we may need to just wait and wait and wait and see who actually gets in there that we think can help our team because I don't want to just add a body. I want to make sure that if we add somebody, it's not only is are they a good player because we wouldn't add them if they weren't, but they've also got to be a good fit for, for what we do sure. and how we think. And, um, and that's why I think in recruiting, we don't, we don't really cast a very big net in recruiting either. I don't recruit a lot of guys. We kind of, we kind of sit around and think about the guys that we've watched and seen and, and, and get references from either through former players or, or maybe guys that we've already got signed and are coming in to kind of help tell us, you know, who do they want to have as a teammate? And I always tell them, I say, look, I know he's a good player. I'm not worried about that part of it. What I want to do is I want to ask you, is this a kid you want to room with? Is this kid you want to travel with? Is this a kid yeah. that's that's not going to be, you know, a problem as a teammate? He's going to think about the team, not just himself. And so, you know, take the playing part out of it. We, we'll, we'll know whether he's a good player or not. We want to know if his personality fits and, and it will be a good teammate for us. So we rely heavily on the, on, the, on the current players to help us identify the younger ones coming up and do those guys fit. So consequently, we, we might only really recruit three or four guys hoping to get, you know, maybe two of them. Um, but we, you know, but, but we'll, that the ones that we really, really want, we're, we're going to hone in on those four or five pretty quick. It's not a very big net, but we try to stay in what we think is our niche, which is in the state of Georgia, in the Southeast. Again, guys that we think fit what we do. You got two less players in the SEC that you have to worry about this spring. No Nick Dunlap and no Caleb Surratt. I know. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, I, you, I, I'm guessing you're not you're not crushed. It wasn't the worst thing in the world for you to see as as a as an SEC coach. Well, yeah from a from from having to play against those guys. Yeah, yeah. That I mean, again, that that part of it didn't bother me. But I will say this: I mean, both Caleb and Nick Dunlap are great kids. They are. I mean, those were, those were kids that we recruited, that we tried to get to come to Georgia, loved them both. They're funny when I would see them at tournaments. Um, I know coach Douglas and Surratt, man, they, they seem to have an ongoing giggle and laugh about everything they were always talking about. And every time I would see Nick Dunlap, I'd always give him a hug and say hello. And again, just a, just a great kid. Yeah. So to see those guys, um, you know, have this opportunity to go do and, and, and be a part of what they've ultimately wanted to do for the rest of their lives. I think it's awesome. Yeah. And, um, you know what, I, honestly, if, if, uh, if either one of those guys would have been playing for me and would have had that opportunity, I would have probably kicked them out. I'd have probably said, look, you've got to go. Oh yeah. I'm not even going to try to talk you into staying because this is something with that kind of money involved i mean yeah you got to do it so well and yeah, also hate- just knowing what the start of every pretty much 90 percent of all the pro careers look like it's such a struggle and after you've seen that firsthand for 30 years um i mean these two guys basically are skipping over that that two to three year window of struggling and they're just off to the races yeah you know i had one of the uh one of the kids say to me, he goes, yeah, but, you know, talking about Surratt. And I, I, again, I do not know what he 
signed for. I have no clue. Me neither. Somebody, somebody, and I'm just going to throw this out, but somebody had mentioned they'd heard, you know, $5 million. Well, again, in the world of live, $5 million doesn't seem like a lot because you saw a lot of $20 and $30 million sure. contracts. But somebody somebody made that comment and they went, Yeah, but he only signed for five million. And I went, Do you know how much five million dollars is? <laughs> and they're like, they're like, Well, I, yeah, I, I know. I said, No, let me put it in perspective. I said, if you graduated from college today and you weren't gonna play professional golf, but somebody offered you a job for two hundred thousand dollars a year, it'd be a pretty good gig, wouldn't it? And they went, Well, yeah. Uh-huh. And I went, Well, think about that. It would take you 25 years to make that money. And they went, Oh gosh, I never thought about it that way. I said, exactly. That's a lot of money. That's a life. That's a life changing amount of money to where it gives you the freedom to really go pursue your dreams. So, um, so again, I don't blame them at all for, for making that leap. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, I think everyone follows uh, all the news on social media. It seems every day something's coming out about live and the PGA tour and, I think uh, I think the some sort. I mean, I saw something this morning about the invest some investment group at the PGA Tour. I, I didn't get a chance to read the whole thing, but yeah, everyone has their own opinions until the money's put right in front of them. And um, yeah, I, I think I think uh, everyone's got an opinion. They're not not many of them are in the same shoes as someone like a Nick Dunlap or a Caleb Surratt. And um, yeah, it, uh, it's it's an ever ever evolving situation right now in professional golf. But yeah, I I think it's it looks very very difficult for the majority of the guys that are trying to make it professionally. I mean, I spend a lot of time with, with in college golf and amateur golf, and every year, obviously, we we lose a graduating class and they move on to the next level, and then I'll look at Q school and Monday qualifying and corn Ferry and, and PJ to Americas. And, and there, there they are, the majority of them, that's where they're at. And yeah, it's, it's a rough life. It's a, it's, it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And, and, uh, I hear that story a lot of them just saying, man, I miss amateur golf and we had it so good. And yeah, I, I, yeah, I, that's, that's kind of how I see it. Yeah. And I, you know, and I do think, I do think the guys that have financial security um, without status, yeah, they they are they seem to be the guys that actually have a chance to maybe sustain. Because again, the longer you can, the longer you can keep going and keep trying, um, you know, you get more comfortable and it's a little easier. But but if you're a, a kid coming out of a family that doesn't have a whole lot of money and Hey, I've got maybe one or two years to give it a try and see if it can happen. It it becomes a lot more pressure on them. Is there a former player that you had? I just thought of this. Do you, is there a former player that you had that was that called you and said, "Coach, I think I'm done. I just can't do it anymore. I'm not sure." I and and they they give it maybe like one more year to give it a shot, and then all of a sudden they catch fire. Can you think of anyone that's on tour now that was close to quitting? Um. Not anybody that was close to quitting as a pro. Now I did have, I did have a player who had played four years for me. He redshirted one of the years. So he had an extra year, but he was just starting to kind of figure it out his last year, his fourth year. Um, he was just starting to, to really believe in himself and kind of figuring out how good he could be. Um, but he was also graduating 
And his parents were thinking that it was probably time for him to graduate and go ahead and get a job. Right. And I had to say, no, 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 no. You, I'm telling you, I need to talk to your parents because you're now starting to figure this out. You're starting to understand what it means to play, believing in yourself and trusting your golf swing. You're really good. I would love for you to come back for a fifth year because I really do think you've got a big upside. And I did convince them to come back for that fifth year. And it turned out that, um, that it was the right decision. It was Seth Strachan. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, and again, it was, it was one of those things where Sep, you know, was always, I mean, he was always looking good on the range and during rounds and, and, but he'd always have a couple of holes that would derail him a little bit. And, uh, and it just, it was just self-belief. It was just learning that you got to trust yourself in those tight situations. And, and he eventually just kind of started believing in himself and, and overcoming those, those, you know, one or two bad shots that would cost him. And, and then, uh, again, I, I credit, um, I credit a guy like Mookie DeMoss who's with me right now because they were teammates and they would literally get out there and chip and putt against each other. And, and Mookie saw that as well. He saw the same thing, with uh, Ox, is what he called him, but he would say the same thing with Ox and that he was just getting better and better. And uh, he was glad he was coming back for a fifth year as well. Wow. So Sep Straka might not have been Sep Straka is what you're saying. Yeah. If uh, if he had just graduated and, and gotten, uh, gotten a job, now he might at some point have hated that job and started playing golf again and, uh, and still done it. But, but it just kind of the timing of it was just right for us. Cause again, he ended up being an, an all American for us and, sure. and uh, just a great kid. That's a, uh, that's a great story. Uh, talk to me about your current, uh, your current squad. And, um, and if you feel like throwing in a good, uh, Dougie fresh story, Jim Douglas, I mean, I, I feel like we haven't given him uh, enough, uh, enough publicity on this episode. I always like seeing him in tournaments yeah, give me give me a good Dougie Fresh story before I get you out of here. Well, well, I'll just tell you this: Dougie Fresh has been uh, he's been on this weight loss kick, so he's looking good. He's down oh. to only about I think he told me the other day he's down to like two hundred and six or something. So he's lost about forty pounds. Wow! Um, yeah, extra fresh, he, extra fresh. Yes, and he uh, he did mention the other day that he hadn't had any sugar for a while, but at some point I'm going to see a donut in his future. That's <laughs> going to just stare him down and he's going to lose that contest. But, uh, but no, he's doing, he's doing well. He looks great. And, uh, he's all energized, uh, ready for the spring as well. So, uh, between he and Mookie, you know, being with us at tournaments, uh, you know, it'll be, it'll be fun just having those two guys to bounce stuff off of and, and out there rooting on our kids. But as far as our current team goes, um, again, I've got a, I got a very veteran team. Um, and that I, I really feel like I've got, uh, you know, seven or eight players that are all very, very similar, all very talented. It's just a matter of those guys all having to being able to step up at the right time and, and play to their abilities because, you know, with, with Benjamin and Buck and, and Beck and Connor and Caleb, um, all being older, you know, older guys with a lot of experience, 
And then, you know, a kid like, you know, Carter Laughlin continues to come into his own. And, um, and then you've got Cam Smith, who's a freshman who yeah. is coming in. He's, he's wanting to compete against these guys. He's like a cage cat, just ready to go, go, go. Um, you know, I've got, I've got a lot of interesting qualifying going on right now where it's very competitive and it's, it's fun to watch because these guys are getting after it and, uh, they don't, they want to be on that bus when we leave for a tournament. So it's very competitive and, and fun to watch, but I got, I've got, I think one of the most cohesive and, and, uh, uh, just universally a, a fun group of kids to be around that I've ever had. It's been a, it's been a fun year so far. Well, that's great. That's a, that's a great compliment. Cause I know that, uh, you know, as rosters change and season, I mean, gosh, 29 years, um, you know, to have a team that's cohesive, that's, that's going to be a highlight. Well, coach, I appreciate the time. Um, I'm going to be seeing you guys. Well, I'll see you at linger longer, um, down at Reynolds Lake Oconee, uh, in, in March. So looking forward to that. Uh, go enjoy yourself in Puerto Rico. Get some warm weather. Uh, make sure you take care of Dougie Fresh. Give him a donut. Let's just, just to, to take care of the guy. And yeah, I appreciate you stopping by the back of the range. I'll see you soon. We will see you soon. And Ben, I always appreciate seeing you. And we'll see you at Lingalonger. And there you have it. Special thanks to Coach Chris Hack for joining me on this episode here at the back of the range. Congrats on the win at Puerto Rico. Don't forget, follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. And stay tuned for a lot of great content this week from the Gasparilla Invitational. We'll see you next time here at the Back of the Range.